This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's election day and everything we've been talking about for the last 36 days comes down to this. Has the campaign crystallized what is most important to us and what we hold dear? I'm afraid I'm pessimistic. I think it has increased or at least highlighted the divisions among us. Quebec versus the rest of Canada, East versus West, vaccinated against unvaccinated, and yes, even young against old. And yes, by the way, this is the most expensive election ever held, a hundred million more than the last one two years ago. It is now clocking in at $610 million. I also think the campaign has obscured some things that we should have been shining more of a light on. Chief among them continued outbreaks in nursing homes and assisted living facilities where unvaccinated workers are infecting vaccinated frail elders. What do you think? What are you thinking of as you head to the polls, or maybe you've already been? The numbers 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And right now, I am counting on the Zoomer squad to cheer me up. I'd like to welcome David Kravitz. Vice President of Zoomer Media and Chief Membership Officer at CARP, Peter Mugridge, the Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, and John Wright, Executive Vice President of Maru Public Opinion. Hello and welcome, everyone. Hi, Libby. Hi, everyone. So, David, am I being unnecessarily pessimistic? Uh, Where do you see us at as we head to the polls today? I, I don't think you're being unreasonably pessimistic. I see the election as a an interruption that was largely unwelcome, and there will be a return to the very same issues uh, tomorrow, regardless of who wins. And so in that sense, I think that you're right to be pessimistic. It didn't really change anything. And it was an opportunity for, frankly, for all of the parties to voice essentially the same pieties and to um, postpone any real in-depth discussion of the of, you know, the deeper issues, notably health care, I would say, which pulls very high in voter concern and which was addressed in the most uh, elementary, simplistic way. And here's my money. Now let's move on to the next topic. So uh, I don't think you're you're wrong to be pessimistic, but I think that uh, uh, the same agenda is going to prevail uh, going forward as uh, did before the election. Peter Mugridge, how do you see it? Well, Libby, I, I think your setup was was bang on. You know, um, all the divisions that um, were present before the election were, have been, you know, not greatly heightened, but not solved either. So um, they, they're all going to exist, and and if if the polls are any indication, and Jane can can shed some light on those, uh, you know, it's going to be status quo to what it was before, and. Um, and everyone's going to be left scratching their heads why we even went through this expensive and time-consuming process. So, uh, you know, it, uh, if it goes back to status quo, that, that's going to count as a loss for Trudeau. And um, I, I, I'm very, um, I'd be very interested to see if, if his leadership was up for review, if, if that's the result. John Wright, are most Canadians uh, as uh, pessimistic as I am? Well, I think the good news is you're probably more optimistic than most. Oh, dear, um, that's not good news. <laughs> well, I, I guess I step back from this even a little bit further, and I'm sure the others will, too. And it's kind of like, uh, I have to write a series of questions for our omnibus to go and poll Canadians, you know, within the next couple of days to find out what they thought about this. And I was in the midst of writing just before 
you know, we started this. And you can ask the basic questions about whether, uh, you know, Mr. Trudeau should resign um, because he didn't get what he was after, or maybe the other leader should, or whether we're more divided or unified, one of those. But I think there's another thing that creeps into this uh, kind of a campaign, and that is, is democracy working and flourishing because we can do these things, or is it fundamentally broken and needs an overhaul? And I think, you know, invariably coming out of... some contests, you get people talking about, you know, different forms of representation and things like that. I think we may come out of this with something a little more uh, deep, um, because we not only have given way to great cynicism that we've accomplished anything through this, in fact, we have probably left the country more divided, but we've now given birth to another um, political party on the scene, uh, you know, the, the People's Party of Canada, who is very anti most of the status quo that's there, but vigorously anti. So it wasn't, that party really was not there or active before August the 17th of this year. And now in some polls, it's clearing, you know, 10%. Most of them are showing 6%. It's given birth to something that's that's going to be a difficulty, I think, for many in this country to handle. So I'm not, you know, that's a product of democracy, but I wonder whether or not a lot of voters and people are just going to look at the mess we just went through and said, this is just broken. I don't know what to do about it, but it makes me really cynical about the very thing that keeps us together. Hmm. David, do you agree? I mean, I have to say that on that note, I do feel a certain optimism because when I when I look at the United States, I think uh, not guaranteed that their democracy will hold. But when I look at us, I think, yeah, we're I, th- I think we're good with that, <laughs> at least with that. Yeah, I don't think that the the issue is, you know, is the democracy holding. I think the issue is, um, are the underlying problems and issues going away? And did the election resolve something? We have had elections in the past where there have been big uh, policy issues that resolved the direction, Mulroney in favor of, of free trade, the, the liberals at that time against it. Um, this is just... Uh, you know, pedaling on, going up and down on the on the on the Ferris wheel or the merry-go-round, holding your position. But in the background, there are very very serious problems that need dealing with. Some of them within our country, some of them outside. I note that the Dow is off 500 points today over fear of a property value collapse in China, brought on by the failure of their biggest property company. The world economy could be shaken now or already is as a result of COVID. There's the Afghanistan thing. There's a whole relationship with China. There's France recalling its ambassador in a deal that Canada was excluded from. Uh, Trudeau, if he wins, is going to have a full plate and he's going to be inviting a much sharper and more pointed uh, opposition than he got before when everybody kind of held back because, you know, COVID is number one. Let's let the guy deal with that. I don't think that's going to hold anymore. And the winner of this election may well uh, regret having won because there's such a litany of problems that have to be dealt with. Well, definitely. I mean, everyone is talking about strategic voting. And I think that uh, people who are more on the progressive side, if they vote for Trudeau, they'll they'll be doing so uh, holding their nose, frankly, Peter. Yeah, it, it seems that way because... Um if uh, like a vote for the NDP is really a, a vote against Trudeau and um, for uh, conservatives, so um, you know, it, I, John could probably speak more to this, but but it seems to me uh, going into elections, the NDP always have a certain percentage, and then they come out, out of it with a not the same percentage. So I so I always uh, suspect that NDP voters become liberal voters at the ballot box, and uh, um, I, whether. You know, I, I just, I, I don't know if Trudeau's brand is strong enough to pull those same voters or his message is strong enough to pull those same voters. So um, perhaps we'll even see, um, you know, a, a spike in the NDP. But I, I'd love to hear what John has to say about that. Okay, John. Well, I, there's a couple of things. First of all, we are seeing a spike for the NDP. Um, we're seeing them up about five points from where they were in the last election campaign. So we'll see if that materializes. Secondly, I think if you look at Ontario, where a lot of the architects of the federal government used to work in Ontario for Dalton McGuinty and for Kathleen Wynne, 
there was always a strategy employed there by the campaign and by the governing people that if you outflank the NDP, you could actually have them and it could form a better, uh, sizable majority for you. Well, you know, uh, it didn't work for Kathleen Wynne, clearly. And secondly, it doesn't seem to have worked fully for Mr. Trudeau. So I think at the end of the day, though, um, there will be a lot of people in different parts of the country who decide to put their vote uh, with uh, the NDP because it's none of the other parties. And I think, you know, I don't know how substantive it will be to stay, but the Liberals certainly are going to fight over those, uh, you know, in the next election campaign and see if they can get them back. And, well, on the other side of the things, there's the People's Party of Canada, which may be leeching votes away from the Conservatives, and everybody is saying, well, a vote for the People's Party is a vote, is a vote for the, the Liberals. And, and what, I, what I can say uh, to Maxime Bernier is, uh, boy, revenge is a dish best served cold. <laughs> David, what, I mean, well, well I, 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 yes and no. I, I, and I would defer to John here because I've been paying close attention to the regional nature of that ten percent, seven, eight, nine percent that they're getting, um, and I'm not sure how much of it is here in Ontario. A lot of it is out west, and if it holds out west, then for once the conservative vote may be the one that's most efficient because they can afford to give up three or four percentage points to the PPC uh, and still comfortably win all those Western seats. So the Conservatives could say it's a big deal. You know, we, we don't get the 49% of the vote. We get 44% of the vote and we still win all those ridings. So I'm not sure what aggregating the PPC vote when you, when you include the heavy, heavy swing to them out West relative to their small base, I'm not sure whether that makes them as much of a threat uh, as all that we'll have to see, but he'll win. He'll probably win his seat, and he would be an interesting new voice in Parliament. Bernier, uh, I don't see it really hurting the seat count of the Conservatives as much as the the headlines are claiming it will. Uh, let's take a call from Stan in Ontario. Hello, Stan. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Good afternoon. Um, Good afternoon, I guess. Yes, I, I just have a couple observations and one concern. One observation that we all know, whoever is elected is going to have 65% of the Canadian population against them. All right? 65% will not vote for the prime minister. They'll probably get 35%. The second point is we, we know or we've had a lead from the past that whoever wins 905 will be the next Prime Minister. But my observations that I think we've overlooked and are more concerning to the working poor and the middle class, I mean, it's hard to identify some, but these are very clear. Number one, the price of gas is devastating to a lot of people. Number two, food prices are increasing, and that's proven across the province. Number three, it has been shown that Natural gas prices will increase this fall, and electricity will. Those factors are affecting the daily life of the majority well, of Canadians. Thanks, Dan, for that. And, and I think what we saw from the Conservatives, they uh, tried to say that the ballot question, the most important issue is affordability, as opposed to Liberals, who are saying it's the pandemic and the management of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So I, are they both right, John? Well, the number one issue going into this campaign was affordability. It was then followed by um, the environment, uh, followed then by the deficit and uh, jobs and uh, the economy. And if I reflect on the last number of weeks in that campaign, I, I really didn't hear any of that. I mean, I might have heard it in a couple of places, but what I really heard was a prime minister who had no agenda when he started this campaign and then put together an agenda based on the negatives of the other party. Um, so I heard a lot about guns and abortion and vaccines and a bunch of things like that, but I didn't hear anything about exactly what your caller is talking about. Those issues are not going away. And again, this, this feeds on the cynicism of why we had a $600 million election. All that money could have been used for a heck of a lot of other things. But the issues that matter most to Canadians were not addressed. And I think, again, this goes to an underpinning that, you know, I, I think the sentiment is going to be that something's not working. When you can have an entire campaign run by the elites 
talking about what they want to talk about and not talking about the things that matter to Canadians, is the process working? And I, I really feel sorry for many Canadians who believe that it is not working Are we losing you, or is that my... I'm sorry? Uh, uh, I'm I just, I'm not sure either. I'm losing, we're losing John in terms of audio, or it's just my little here. setup here. I'm here. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's that's okay now. Um, I don't know, uh, David, I thought that the Conservatives were addressing the issue of affordability if the Liberals were counting on pandemic management to give them a majority. Well, I think you have it exactly right. It, it's so much so that uh, Trudeau in the latter days was saying in order to end COVID, vote against O'Toole. Um, I think that this is a classic example that we see in a lot of other surveys in my background, more in marketing than in politics, where people will say that a topic is important to them, but to the extent that you're asking them about that topic, but then when you rank it with others, and is it a, is it a operational difference? It's not. I don't think that there's a party political line of demarcation around uh, COVID, even even around masking, even to a degree around vaccines, because there's so much variance already in infection rates and COVID is, is the Delta thing retreating? Is it increasing? What's happening in each province? It's very difficult to trace this back to if I vote for the Liberals, we'll be fine. If I vote for the Conservatives, we won't be fine or the other way around. And I think that John is correct that some of these other issues and what our caller just said about the cost of living and affordability, but that's what I mean when it's all over, the winner is going to have to deal with this stuff. And because uh, COVID is going to retreat if for no way, in spite of all our mismanagement, if for no other reason, then that's what's happening uh, everywhere with that virus, bad as it is. Then what have you got? Are you dealing with health care? Are you dealing with affordability? Are you dealing with uh, wiping out uh, Western Canada's resource industry? How are you dealing with these deeper and more enduring problems, and do you have any answers for those? And uh, I'm not, uh, I go back to your pessimism at the beginning, Libby, I'm not optimistic about any real uh, adventurous solutions to be found anywhere on the landscape, frankly. Let's hear from Michelle in Toronto. Hello, Michelle. Hi, Libby. How are you? Fine. How are you? Well, I'm, you know, pretty emotional about all of this. The politics really don't uh, you know, don't uh, encourage me to talk much because there's nothing there to really talk about. I'm really concerned about long-term care, and I'm really concerned about the people who live in long-term care, you know, waiting four years to get more staff. They expect two staff on one unit or 20 residents, no matter what their problem is, they expect two staff to care for 20 residents each day and from 6.30 to 8.30 in the morning, they expect two staff to get 20 residents up and ready for breakfast and at their table, ready to eat. How do you do that? That's 10 minutes per person. Some of these people are in wheelchairs. My family is living in long-term care. My mother has a lot of friends in long-term care. And it's really, really sad right now. A lot of them died during COVID, not due to COVID, but they died due to neglect. Absolutely. And and you know what, um, Michelle, is I, I think that we've taken our focus off of that. It's a provincial issue and, and uh, bad things are continuing to happen while we're focused on, on other things. But Michelle... Really bad. I, I hear you. Thank you very much for your call. Um, David, I mean, you were saying that, uh, and Peter as well, that you think these issues will will focus on them again as soon as this is over. Uh, Peter, do you agree with David? Yeah, you know, I have my the the uh, if if we come back with another minority, well, I don't know what we're going to focus on. It's just going to be survival, I think, for the government. And uh, you know, I, I, they want to they want a majority to unveil their grand plans for recovery. But um, do they have a plan B for if they get a minority? I, I doubt it. Um, and so, um, I, I, you know, it, it's a bit worrisome, really, to, to spend two more years in a, in a minority without any clear direction or leadership or, you know, a constant threat of the government falling. It's not a great time to, uh, 
to be in this situation, I don't think. But, John Wright, Canadians want a minority. I mean, I think uh, if, uh, if there's anything clear from all of this, that's the one thing. I think at the end of the day, though, what Canadians really want are their issues addressed, and they want someone to address them. And what we're going to plunge back into with a minority, because I don't see it being a majority, and it's more likely a liberal minority, <clears throat> is more of the same. And and you and I know that, you know, you can do every throne speech you want, but, you know, and say what you're going to do. But between now and when that happens, there's going to be lots of courting that takes place. You know, we could be months away from addressing some of those real needs. And then everything's going to be set up for the next political campaign, which could be 18 months from now. So, again, I don't want to sound like the, you know, the pessimistic parrot in the room, but I, I share the frustration that your callers have. You know, at, at the end of the day, I'm a citizen of this country. I have, you know, my own needs to look after my family and other people. And I just think we went through an incredible exercise that, that produced nothing to assure people that their views are going to be taken care of. It was a very partisan event, and that's what elections are all about. But I don't know what the ballot question was at the end of the day, other than, you know, elect somebody who's not as bad as the other person. Well, I think you I think you've hit it right there. And and the other thing is, I mean, you know, when you're talking about people being disillusioned with our system, I I don't know if it's the first past the post thing, but it's also the gamesmanship that's involved. You make a promise in 2019, uh like like Trudeau did with uh, the extra 500 bucks for people over 75, and you deliver, you know, a, a, a few days before you call an election in 2021. Right. I mean, and come you talk on. You about it all the way through, too. Right? Pardon? You talk about it all the way through as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, it's just, I, I think it's, it's not just the way everything is down on paper. We, we need that, but it's, it's the gamesmanship, I think, that, that has a lot of people so, disillusioned. Uh, Peter, I mean, do you, do you hear a lot of that from your audience? Yeah, and, and, and you touched on it in, in your interview, sort of the cynicism, the overriding cynicism, not of the election, but of, of how the, um, you know, how the, how the campaigns are being run, what the messages are, and, and it's just, where is all this leading? Is this, you know, what, what's the good that will come out of this? And, uh, you know, if we go back to status quo, no good has come out of it, only bad and further division. And, uh, and that looks like the result. So, so it's easy to understand why, why people are feeling that way. Very easy. Okay. Let's take a call from Dennis in Brampton. Hi, Dennis. Thanks, Libby. And I guess my biggest beef is that, uh, relative to the last caller is if people had taken the time to take a look at the party's platforms, uh, they were laid out quite clearly, and so I believe that the platforms did, in most cases, address the issues that do matter to Canadians. And if you study the platforms, you decide on the one that you think is hits on all fours. And I think they did that. So I guess my concern is people are expressing opinions without having done the in-depth look at the platforms and just focusing on sound bites. Well, and that's my comment. Well, you know what? That's a that's a valid comment, Dennis. Except to say, the Conservatives had the platform from day one. The Liberals, oh, it took them a while, and. Uh, I think part of the disillusionment is what I said. You know, you can put it in the platform, but what guarantee do do we have that that there will be a delivery? Um, John, what what do you say to that? You know, the business about reading the platforms, which I think is a very valid comment. It is a valid comment, except the demographic that listen to Zoomer oftentimes has a lot more time to do that than people who are rushing, in, you know, from place to place or just focused on their daily lives. And I think. You know, it's again a comment where we've been through election campaigns where substantive issues have been decided upon as a result of coming out of that. Like I can remember as far back as the free trade agreement where it was hotly debated in this country and, you know, where they ended up having a majority government given to the person who, you know, then went ahead and implemented it. So like we have dealt with substantive issues. So there's nothing to say that the issues which our callers are talking about aren't important or that you could go and read with a pamphlet, but 
that's not the conversation that was that was catered to during this campaign. And that conversation was shaped by the political leaders. Uh, and, and, and that's why a lot of people are going to vote on those things, because it's, it is those things that are driving them through the polls rather than being addressed that they really want in their lives. Okay. David. Well, I think uh, the caller, um, Dennis, made a very good point, but it shows the the gap between the leadership and the platform. I mean, it's easy to write the platform. If you sat down, any one of us, if you dropped us into the war room of any of the parties, regardless of our own personal ideologies, we'd know what the topics were. We'd know what to promise. It's not like they've missed some big, huge, glaring topic that they overlooked. They all know the right things to say. But the voters don't have the confidence that they're really dealing with it. And one of the big problems that the liberals had to overcome, which, by the way, is just true of being the incumbent. You know, you've been in there for six years, Mr. Trudeau. Why didn't you do this and this and this and this and this? Um, and so, you know, what's his answer? Well, I'm going to do it now. Well, it's it's a problem that they've broken the trust somehow between uh, the rhetoric and the action. And I think that's why the people, uh, people are cynical because they also see these problems continuing in spite of all the verbiage that the politicians are throwing around. Peter. Um, more of what David said, you know, um, I, I've looked through the platforms and you, know, you, you can pick out stuff. You can, you know, you can see that uh, Trudeau is going to hire 50,000 new PSWs. You can see that. You know, O'Toole will protect your pension. You can see that Jagmeet will, um, you know, um, get rid of private, uh, uh, long-term care. But, but again, is, is any, like, is any of this going to happen? I mean, these are, these are all sort of grand vision ideas. Like, is any of it going to happen? And, and, and I think people are, after six years of Trudeau, people are just not confident that, uh, parties are able or willing to deliver on their promises. So, Today is the day, uh, you know, we might, uh, I know that I will be here until quite late. I don't know if I will have a result for people. I don't know how long that's going to take. But, uh, you know, when it, when all is said and done, is this just going to be some kind of uh, anomalous election that, you know, <laughs> we hope won't be repeated, David? Well, I think it's, uh, I don't know if it's going to be anomalous. I mean, remember back that when, Way back when, that our, our baby boomer audience will know the Pearson Decent Baker years, one election after another, each one about increasingly trivial issues like the design of the flag, and yet we kept going to the polls and not changing very much. So this, we may be in that same mode now, but I don't think you're going to have a decisive. I have no reason to disbelieve the polls or the aggregate of the polls. And, you know, John could weigh on this. I think that we're going to have a very narrow win either way, liberal or conservative. And um, if it's the conservatives, then we might see some things change in the, in the not so much the policy, but the dynamic of how the government runs. But uh, I don't th- I think this is going to be one of those tiny little incremental things, and we're going to look back at $610 million and say, what was it for? Uh, Peter, same? Yeah, I think we'll look back and, and say uh, 2021 was uh, Justin Trudeau's last election. Oh, uh, there's that's, yeah. that's a relatively bold prediction. John yeah. Wright, I'm going to give you the last word. Uh, well, I agree with the other two um, observers, but I think the other thing that we've overlooked in all of this is the rise in the People's Party of Canada. I think I might change Maxine Bernier's first name to Vaccine Bernier, um, because the People's Party of Canada has evolved as a result of Quebec bringing in the passport. It did not exist in the week of August the 10th, but shortly thereafter it did, and it's responded around the anti-vaccine, anti-passport, pro-liberty choice, and you know, we're going to have to watch where that goes because it's an angry group of people. It's a faction we haven't seen in Canadian politics, I don't think, to the same degree for a long time. So let's, you know, coming out of this is going to be something that we didn't expect uh, that now has form, but is certainly going to be there for the next election. So I'll be interested to see where that goes. 
Okay. <laughs> Altogether, not a very uh, happy uh, pr- prediction among <laughs> us. But let's uh, let's see what happens. It'll be interesting, no matter what. Thank you so much, David Kravitz, John Wright, and Peter Mugridge. Thank you, Thank Libby. Bye, everyone. Thank Bye. Uh, and again, people, I will be here until late tonight, uh, just bringing updates if you're chilling and listening to music. Uh, but I can't, of course, guarantee that we will know the results by then. Uh, and of course, we'll have full coverage tomorrow morning. Right now, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about that terrible surge of COVID in Alberta. We have pledged to help them. A lot of people in Alberta want federal help. They want the military. So far, that has not been requested. We'll talk about that and the surges. And uh, also good news on the COVID front, because Pfizer announced that uh, the clinical trials show that the vaccine is safe and effective in young children. So we'll have all of that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The situation in Alberta is dire, and they are asking for our help. Last week, Health Minister Christine Elliott confirmed we will give them that leg up. Meanwhile, Alberta's largest health care unions and largest worker advocacy group are urging Premier Jason Kenney to immediately request federal assistance to deal with the overwhelmed hospitals. Doctors are bracing for the introduction of triage protocols where they would be forced to decide which critically ill patients get the care they need. And it's heartbreaking. I mean, even just listen to this letter. Quote, it is our assist- it is our assessment that Alberta's healthcare system is not just on the verge of collapse. We believe it is actually collapsing in front of our eyes. Wow. There's talk of bringing patients from Alberta to our ICUs and perhaps sending some of our healthcare workers there. So is that the right thing to do? And can we afford to? And also on another note, good news from Pfizer. Clinical trials show that the vaccine is safe and effective in young children 5 to 12 so the numbers to call if you have questions, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Dr. Eyal Golan, an intensive care doctor at a GTA hospital, and Dr. Carrie Bowman, a bioethicist at the University of Toronto. Hello there. Thank you so much for being with us. Happy to be here, Libby. Hi, Libby. Happy to be here as well. Thank you. Um, Let's begin with Dr. Bowman. So, uh, you know, this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated, and I know that that fact is hard on a lot of medical professions. So should we send help to Alberta? Yes, we definitely should send help to Alberta. This is no time to, you know, be making judgments about who made good decisions and bad decisions. I mean, I think it's pretty clear, you know, what kind of decisions were made. But look, if we're going to, you know, we need to stand together. We need solidarity at a time like this. And the goal is to protect human life. I absolutely think it's the right thing to do without question. Dr. Golan, you are an intensive care doctor. You're on the front lines. I mean, I'm sure it's very easy for you to put yourself in that situation. I mean, how would you how would you feel about that? Well, I tend to agree, though. I think um, in our profession, we we treat first. Uh, we, we don't. It, it would be no different than if a you know, drunk driver got in a car accident and hurt themselves. We would still take care of them. I, I think people's decisions. We don't weigh them when we make medical decisions. And I think if we're called to help, we help. We we help first. We ask questions later. And as as difficult it might, as it might be, uh, I I think we we have to treat everybody the same way. We would have to treat them the same way as we would in wave one or two or three. And I think. Uh, it, it is part of our job. I think you sign up for it and he, you don't have the, the comfort or the ability to judge. I think you treat. And, and then uh, some people are misinformed. Some people are, are scared. There's a variety of reasons why somebody may not be vaccinated, but I don't think it's for us to judge. I think it's for us to treat them. 
Right. But but what do you think people would be going through? If, I mean, I think it's, it's bad enough when they see unvaccinated people getting very sick here. But going to another place, I mean, what, how, what kind of a toll do you think that would take on the actual person giving the care? Well, it takes an, a tremendous toll. I, I can tell you working in the hospital, we uh, the vast majority, upward of 90% of the patients we're treating in intensive care units who have COVID are unvaccinated. Um, and I think even before you even take into account whether they're vaccinated or not, I think at this point, just like the general population, we're all exhausted. Um, whether, you know, it's, it's a personal respiratory therapist, a physician, or the allied health, I think we're all, we're all, we're not burnt out, but we're quite tired. And I think we all want a bit of a break. So I think this is one of those situations where even if everybody was fully vaccinated and came in sick, we'd be equally tired. The only difference is now, uh, subconsciously or not subconsciously, it, it's that much more tricky because this is preventable. And, and, and a lot of people, you know, go to work and say, you know what, I'm, I'm still going to do my job. I'm still going to do the same way. But it's unfortunate because this is entirely a preventable wave. Um, and it does take a toll. It takes an emotional toll and a physical toll. But, you know, that is part of the job. And we all signed up for it years ago. Uh, we may not have signed up for it to continue for this much time, but you never know. And in fact, in 10 years time or 20 years time, there might be another pandemic where we're asked to jump in and that's part of the job. You have, you have to do what you have to do. Uh, Dr. Bowman, also in terms of, of working in those conditions. So my reading of it is that uh, the the ICUs, the intensive care in Alberta are now 86% full, but that's only because they introduced a surge capacity, which means, uh, again, they're, they're having beds in all kinds of unusual places, mm-hmm. you know, like in, in operating rooms where surgeries have been canceled because of this, who knows, in, in hallways and in, in conference rooms. How much harder is it to work under those conditions? I mean, even beyond the emotional stuff. Well, it's incredibly difficult. Um, you know, I worked in ICUs exclusively for a lot of years, and it, a lot of it would depend, as, as best I know, um, on, you know, the availability of life support machines, which you can't, you know, ventilators. Uh, not easy to just move those things around. They have, also have to be very, very carefully monitored by highly qualified people uh, like respiratory therapists. Critical care is a significant team effort. It's not something that's done in isolation. So, you know, it's not just physical space. So I, I think they've really got their struggles ahead of them. It, it's really tough to do. I hope they can absorb it. If not, I think everyone in the country has an obligation to try and help. Uh, Dr. Golan, uh, working in those, have you worked in those types of spaces and what's your perspective on that? Yeah, we have. Uh, so I, I work at one of the, not the busiest COVID center in Ontario. So we have, unfortunately. And um, I, I think the first wave, the second wave, and specifically the third wave, we had a variety of limitations and, you know, whether it be E or ventilators or equipment or medications that would have to be triage, which were in the past, like it's it's not novel. We had to triage some medications, but I think currently the main limitation is not equipment; it's human resources. We we just have we don't have the personnel anymore. There's nurses who have retired or who've gone to another field. Or respiratory therapists who are just you know done the same, and physicians as well. Everybody's just at a different level of capacity at this point, and. Although you may physically have a bed, if you don't have the qualified experts to take care of the patient on that bed, that bed closes. So you may have an ICU that has four, four empty beds, and you say, well, why aren't they being used? If you don't have the people to serve it safely, you can't use them. Um, in the past, we have used peop- we have used unconventional spaces. We've used you know parts of uh, conference rooms. We've used closets. Uh, we've used hallways. Uh, they've, they've repurposed uh, the boardroom into a, a fracture clinic, and we took over the fracture clinic. There, there's a variety of, of ways of doing this. Un- unfortunately, none of them are good, and, and we're all trying our best to do what we can. I think at this point, at least in Ontario, we don't have that that limitation, although it's not beyond the realm of possibility to imagine that it'll come to us as well. But back to your point earlier, I, I think when we were strapped 
and when we were using on commercial spaces, people from all over the country came and helped us. So I don't see how we don't reciprocate. And if Alberta were to call, I, I would say yes. You know, let's 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 do this. Let's figure out how we can help you. I, I think we are, although we're all different provinces, we're one big country, and I think we we have to take care of each other now more than ever. So if call me, I, I would I would help. Okay, uh, we've got to take a break. Let me give the numbers out again before we go to break. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We're taking a break. We will be back with Dr. A.L. Golan and Dr. Carrie Bowman. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Uh, we have been talking about the situation in Alberta and how it is impacting here and the question of sending help to Alberta. Now, I have a question, and that is, can we afford to? We are in better shape here. We haven't opened up in the same way that Jason Kenney did, for sure, and we have a higher vaccination rate. But uh, it seems to me that people are expecting a spike when the weather gets colder and we move indoors. And that's basically what we are seeing in so many places around the world. So, Dr. Golan, do you feel that we really can afford that? I don't see how we can afford not to. Uh, we, we should be helping each other out. I think if we have the capability to help now, we help now. And if that means we go over there to help or we transfer patients here to help, uh, I think we, we have to stand uh, together. I, I don't see how we can let one province go into a triage protocol, which effectively means some people will get life-sustaining therapies and others will not, which necessarily means some people will die, whereas they wouldn't have otherwise. While we're sitting here with capacity, I don't think, I, I don't know how ethically, and I, I mean that ethical question to your ethicist, but I don't see how ethically we can, we can sleep at night with that. Um, I think if it ever changes and you know, we are then need, then we can, you know, refocus and figure out where the resources go. But at the present time, if we have capability and they do not, I think we help. Dr. Bowman, uh, what about uh, the ethics on the other side? I, I just read part of a letter from the healthcare unions and other groups uh, asking for the military to be called in and so far nothing and they can't go in without being called in. What are the ethics of that? Well, we have an obligation to do everything we can to protect people's life and well-being. And, you know, it's beyond my range to know whether the military is needed right at this point. But look, if in fact they are and they can be useful and they they can, you know, be be part of a life-saving strategy, we should be doing it. I agree. We have to make this work. And we can't be territorial about this. Um, I agree fully. Um, it, it, but again, it's beyond my scope to know whether the military is required now. I certainly hope politics doesn't get in the way, because if they can be useful in protecting uh, life and health, um, we need them now. Let's hear from Sita in Mississauga. Hi, Sita. Hi. Hi, everyone. How are you? Fine. How are you? Oh, good. Thanks. Um, we have to help. But can the Army help instead of sending doctors and nurses there? And can COVID patients or patients survive the transportation process from Calgary to Toronto? And can makeshift hospitals help? Well, uh, Sita, for one of the questions, uh, it's the makeshift hospital isn't any good unless you have people, uh, very trained people, to work it. But I'm I'm going to let Dr. Golan answer your question. And in the meantime, I'm letting you go. So keep listening. Yeah, thank you. I, I think it's the next question. I, I think the, as we mentioned earlier, that main limitation is not so much equipment or or the facility. Uh, it's it's human resources. Uh, and so let's just say you could put a field hospital or you took over a shopping mall, for example, and you have ample space. Uh, who's going Who's going to man it? Um, I think that's the main limitation. And and uh, unfortunately, is where we are right now because so many people are tired. People have retired. People have gotten sick. Uh, people have moved on because there's only so much of, you know, sprinting you can do before you just get tired. The, the, regarding the transportation of patients, we do have some 
protocols as to safe to be transported and who is not in the same way that within Ontario, when we hit the specific uh, threshold, we'd move patients all across the province. Uh, we would never transport somebody who is too sick to be transported, but you, you can pick and choose, and that patient may be somebody who would be moved because they're safest, even though they may not be the most acute patient. They may not be the person who came in today. Maybe someone who's existing in the ICU for two or three weeks, but they're the safest person to be moved. Uh, and I think we do have the capacity to move people around. Uh, it's just a question of picking and choosing the correct people. Okay, let us let's switch to uh, a happier topic. And uh, Dr. Bowman, uh, we just learned that uh, some of the results from the Pfizer trials on young children are successful. Vaccines safe and effective for children uh, as young as five. How would that be a game changer? And do you have any concept of how long it would take? before that's actually rolled out? Well, let me start with the ethics of it. So I'm not suggesting it's ethically wrong, but the ethical equation changes with children. And um, in the following way, you know, children appear uh, to be less susceptible to COVID. And yes, they can get very, very sick at times, but the incidence of that is much lower. So here's a tough ethical question that I think most of us want to avoid. Are we vaccinating those children when we go under 12? Um, are we vaccinating them for the safety and benefit of the children themselves or for the common good of society? Meaning we're trying, to, you know, we don't want these children to be conduits um, because there are remote but risks, uh, you know, with vaccination. So does the risk benefit equation work as well with children? I don't know the answer to that, but it's an open question. And there's many, there's emphasis, you know, Britain's really struggling with this. And in Britain's, a lot of people in Britain are leaning towards it's maybe not ethically justifiable. Um, it, it appears to me, and for my take on it, the Delta looks worse with, with younger people, but I don't know. Uh, these are complex questions. So how long will it take? I don't know. But remember, Libby, this is also in most cases under Ontario law, this would be sub consent, right? So we wouldn't have the consent of the patient. This would be the parents. So it's what message we're giving the parents and how far we're going to push, encourage the parents to do this. It's going to be tricky. Dr. Golan, you're the parent of young children. Yeah, I have, I have three. Uh, two are, you know, five between that age group of five to 11 and one is under. So um, I think I think in that ethical framework of deciding is it for the best, for the benefit of the child versus society as a conduit of you know, carrying the COVID virus to somebody else. I think this the element to the equation, which is where is the mental health of these children factored in? For example, if my child was to be vaccinated, now I know though they may not be sick from COVID in the same manner or, you know, be a Delta variant or whatever next variant we get, which will likely be worse than Delta variant, uh, is that they remain in school. School I get closed because as long as a certain number of patients or, pay, uh, sorry, children are vaccinated, school won't be closed. And so they will have that ability to stay in school. They have the socializing aspect. They have all their extracurriculars and they have more of a normal childhood because something to consider is that COVID is not going away anytime soon. And people have thought, this is only a few months, we can close school down. But we're going now, it's a year and a half. It's going to go another year, most likely, maybe even longer. So at what point is the detriment to a child's mental health more paramount than if they get you know, a mild respiratory illness that they can stay at home. I think that's something else to take into the And with regards to children, even if you could vaccinate as many as you could, I don't know what the uptake would be because if it's still similar, but, you know, half of children are vaccinated and half are not for parents' refusal for a variety of reasons, you're not going to be that much further ahead. I think there has to be a core number of people that are vaccinated to be able to make a, like a significant change. Would you vaccinate your children? Well, I think the study hasn't actually come out yet. I know, I know Pfizer released a statement. Uh, I would want it peer-reviewed, but if it was peer-reviewed and, and it went in the same manner that the adults, uh, without hesitation, I would vaccinate my children. Mm. I think uh, my children, I know it's, it's a personal decision. I know friends who have kept it in home and other children, other parents who have sent their children to school. For me, in that age group, I have a... So the, the, I have one who's turning eight and one who just turned six. Uh, I think this is their formative years. And I think keeping them away from school for two, three years is, is more detrimental to their mental health than them potentially catching, you know, COVID. 
And so mm-hmm. I, I, I take the risk of sending them to school and they wear a mask and know how to wash their hands. We talk about it and we, we put our trust in the school system that they do it the correct way. I would absolutely vaccinate my children. Dr. Bowman? Yeah, no, I think, you know, those are excellent points. And, and you know, that, that may be the direction we go in for those reasons. I mean, children, parents are wonderful, but they need a break from their parents, too. They need to socialize. <laughs> this is part of the natural development. And most parents wisely realize they need this desperately. And look, it, it, it's a very strong argument, um, and it may be enough. I'm, I'm not taking a position on this one. I'm just trying to highlight that it, it's more ethically complex than it first appears to be. Um, but, you know, again, I, you know, I, I'd like to see something peer-reviewed. Um, I, I'm going to sound cynical here, but, you know, press releases from pharmaceutical companies, and yes, there's research involved, but we need to wait and, and see other data. And I totally agree. That's why I put the caveat that it's not, it has not been peer-reviewed yet, and I would look at it myself yeah. as well, and I would, take, uh, I would make the decision with my wife as to whether this is it, but if it were to be the same data and the same sort of results and side effects as with the adults, without a hesitation, I would not have my children. Mind you, you make a very good point. I mean, what happens if, you know, we don't, we hit 40% in plateau or something? Well, that's going to be awful. I, I speak of with children now, but we'll see. Okay, uh, we are running out of time. Uh, so we have this really bad situation in Alberta. We are poised to help. Uh, just a general sense, Dr. Golan, how are you feeling about the way things are shaping up here as we head into colder season? As Unfortunately, as good as can be expected with the limitation that people are not vaccinating as well as much as they should. I, It, it, it is a bit beyond me how, you know, in the first, Three waves. I understand there's lack of knowledge and lack of information, this hesitation, and initially there's no vaccine. But at this point, it really is uh, completely preventable. I think if people vaccinate, this will all go away very quickly. And I, it surprises me that we, we don't do it. And I, I hope people can be better informed and, and make better decisions. But I think we're as well suited as possible, given the limitation that you know, there's a significant amount of people who are not vaccinated and causing variant strains. And Dr. Kerry Bowman, last word to you. Yeah, no, I would agree. But, Libby, I'm going to say something I've said so many times. The biggest threat to us all is the global situation. And in fairness, we're doing very little about that. And that needs our attention. That's the only way to get through this in the long run. Okay. Thank you both so much, Dr. Kerry Bowman, Dr. Eyal Golan. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Libby. Thank you very much. And that is all the time we have for today. Reminder, we will have election coverage. I will be here until quite late tonight. Hopefully I'll have a result for you, but no promises on that note. And we'll have full coverage and analysis tomorrow and I'm sure for a number of days to come. That's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.